0: As a publisher do you spend a lot of time thinking about how to wrestle control over your tech stacks then we have a summit coming up for you join us at the digiday programmatic media summit in New Orleans, louisiana from november 13 to november 15. we're hosting publishers from across the industry to talk about what they're doing in their newsrooms to tackle the challenges that programmatic presents it's three days of great ideas discussion groups and more Register now at digiday.com slash events. And we're giving a $200 discount to our podcast listeners. Just apply the code podcast at checkout. This is Digiday Live, our podcast where we bring you the best sessions from our many summits around the world. I'm Digiday producer Aditi Sango. This week, we're playing sessions from our Digiday Publishing Summit, Europe in Berlin, Germany. Media is under scrutiny like never before. From spoof domains to ad fraud to fake news, it's hard to tell what is real and what is not. We explored how publishers can use trust to better control their futures, from the duopoly and the race to the bottom. In the times that journalists are often questioned about their reporting process and whether or not they did a thorough job, media companies have to think about how to regain that trust. So New York Times is now taking readers inside the Times and behind the scenes through Times Insider. Here's a session where Digital UK editor Jess Davies speaks to Time Insider's Francesca Donner about what they're accomplishing with the team.
1: So the New York Times is a, a subscriptions first business. Advertising is important still, but it's very much secondary. Um, you obviously have a, a load of different subscription bundles and products um, across food, Crosswords and uh, the Times Insider, which is something that you've specifically looked after for the last couple of years. I'd, I'd like to sort of focus a little on that um, as a product. Um, so, if you could just start us off by just talking a bit about um, what the original purpose of the Times uh, Insider was, and, and how it's evolved, and how it fits in with that uh, mm-hmm. that wider reader revenue model shift. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, that's about start five small, questions. Start small and then we'll grow. <laughs> oh, okay. okay.
2: So um, why don't I just take, back, take a step back and just talk for a minute about what Times Insider is. Um, it's sort of a concept. It has been a product. There are lots of different components to it. Um, and it has evolved so much in the past two years that if you were asking me this question a year ago, I would have had a completely different answer. But Times Insider essentially is our... Um, is basically us trying to bring readers inside the times. We want to bring readers up close and personal with what we do. Um, it's a way of uh, humanising the times. It's a way of really bringing people behind the scenes, showing who we are, how we work, what we do, what we know. And it's sort of unprecedented in a way, because newsrooms, even as few as sort of five to ten years ago, would never dreamed of doing this. Um, so it's really kind of us sort of... Um, pulling down the wall a little bit
1: and showing you this is what the Times is about. Can you give like a, an example of of what you've done, perhaps so around you know the election coverage or any sort of interesting ways that this has has been a sort of a, a good format that's that's attracted a lot of attention from subscribers? Sure.
2: Yeah, I think examples are great. So I will I will um, give you one example um, around a story that you probably all read or either either read or read about, um, and that was. Um Gosh, I wonder if it was last summer, or certainly a year ago, and certainly before the elections, um, the Times got a hold of um, a snippet of um, Donald Trump's 1995 tax records. Um, This was a big, (laughs) major event. As you know, um, Donald Trump uh, never released anything on his tax records. Um, So uh, we got a snippet of them, uh, we wrote an entire story about it, and then we decided to do a Times Insider story about that. I don't know if you read the Times Insider story, but what that documented was how the manila envelope had arrived in the mailbox, how it had a Um, what the return address was, how the uh, reporters had pulled it out, got very excited about it, um, tracked down the accountant who'd prepared the records um, down in Florida, the flights, the cross-checking, the examination, the analysis, the sort of two extra figures that looked like they had been written in, and the reason they actually looked like they had been written in is because the line wasn't long enough to contain that kind of number, Um, and so To me, that kind of story not only shows, okay, this is sort of interesting, but also it's not so easy to um, get this kind of information, uh, verify this information, it required flights, it it required sort of cross-checks, it's complicated. And then you start thinking, wow, there's some real value in that. And to me, also, a story like that kind of makes the journalism that we do come alive because there are people behind it. Obviously, we know there is a reporter behind the scenes doing the work, but when you start hearing those stories, you start thinking about it in a different way.
1: Yeah. Did you get a... a uh, Savinja, so did you get a, a spike in um, people subscribing after that? Because everyone always talks about the Trump bump, you know, either for traffic or for subscriptions. Did you see a grown interest in the insider pieces around Trump? So
2: we, we definitely experienced a Trump bump um, broadly. I can't speak specifically to Times Insider. What I can say is that um, that story, actually, I was just looking at it before... Um, I came to talk to you today, Mm -hmm. and um, we got over, well over 2,000 comments on that story alone, and a lot of the comments on that and some of our other insider stories were, um, um, great work, this is really excellent, you know, keep it up New York Times, this is why I buy a subscription. Um, Not all of them were like that, I want to be quite, there there was lots of criticism as well, there always is, but I think there were so many people who kind of realised and sort of got in that headspace of, oh my God, this is what it means to do this kind of journalism, I get it, this is really important. And sort of seeing that side of it made people feel much more committed to the times and mm-hmm. they put a lot of their commitment right there in the, in the comments. Mm-hmm. How many do you normally get on average? Like, is that what, just about story? Yeah. Well, 2,000 is quite high, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I, you know, we can get anything from, you know, 50 seems good, well, I, a couple yeah. of, you know, 200 seems good, um, 200 seems quite good, 2,000 seems, is, seems very good. Yeah. Especially for a Times Insider story that's a little bit, you know, that's not the core story. And I don't know what the core story got, I can only even imagine how sure. many comments that got. But for, for an ancillary story, I think yeah. that's quite interesting. Yeah,
1: that's an interesting point, actually, because that's something I wanted to ask you. Um, do you feel like the, the concept of going inside the newsroom, even for such a huge brand like the New York Times, do you feel like there's um, a, sort of a finite amount of interest in that, I guess? Because ultimately, there's only so many people who want to know the mechanics of the journalism behind it. They just want the news. Mm. Do you feel that, or, or do you feel differently? So
2: when I first started out, again, so much has evolved. I would have said, oh, absolutely, there's a cap. There's only so many people who are total news nuts that they really care about this stuff. But I think what we found, quite surprisingly, is that people really are interested. And a lot of, um, sometimes when we've looked at the data, we found that the Times Insider is the first doorway into that particular news story. So they might not even read what we call the core story. They might just read the background story, and that's kind of given them enough information and knowledge um, that they can sort of move on from there. So I think that the interest is really, really wide-ranging and coming from a lot of different sources, not just you know, New York Times nuts, but,
1: you know, younger people. Um, so that's really rewarding to see. Hmm. How do you measure it then? What do you look for in terms of the engagement and mm-hmm. sustaining the engagement? Uh, what the, What are the metrics?
2: Well, engagement is exactly the thing. That's what we look for. Um, so engagement... Um Can you break down what you mean by engagement? Sure. So actually, well, the Times actually has a model of how we, how we um, look at engagement. Um, and we do it on th- on three, in three ways. The first thing is, of course, um, how many stories are you reading? Um, how many stories are you reading per session? And how many stories are you reading over the course of a month? Um, so in a way, it's more valuable to have someone coming over multiple times over the course of a month than to just come one time and read 40 stories. I'd much rather someone comes four times over the course of a month and actually only reads two or three stories because that's a, that's a habit. Um, And then the third part of the engagement model is what's the breadth of your coverage that you're reading? So if you have someone who's coming and just reading politics, that's all well and good, but we found that um, people are more likely to be interested in a subscription if they're reading across a lot of different desks, as we call them, which is the old-fashioned model for a newspaper. But essentially, if, if someone is reading food coverage and politics and international and sports, that's really a compelling thing for us. Those are the people who are gonna be more engaged across the board,
1: across the time. And is that what's happened with the, 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 the Times Insider as well? It's become one of these bundles?
2: I would say, for Times Insider, I would say that it's, think of it like a desk. So think of it, you know, if we can get people reading a politics story, some insider content, some food, some, you know, styles, um, and anything else, then that, that would be good. Mm-hmm. So it's part of the breadth of the Times. But I do think that Times is—I mean, I do think that Times Insider is doing something a little bit different, which is really um, bringing this kind of other dimension to the work that the Times is doing. So, um, you know, most of much of our reporting is quite straightforward. We've also seen a shift in how we report things, and I'm sure most newsrooms are seeing this as well, which is sort of we've moved from. The very formal sort of reporting of yesteryear to reporting that can be first person, um, much more sort of narrative driven, uh, anecdotal, even you know the the reporter sort of showing up in the story. That's a really big part of it, and I sort of think that's kind of an evolution of this Times Insider idea. Does mm-hmm. that make sense?
1: Yeah. It does. Um How many people work on Times Insider? Is there like a specific team, or is everybody? Is it part of everybody's remit?
2: OK, that's a great question. So, um, uh, originally, Times Insider was a little, a little core. Um, there were some people in product, um, there were some people in the newsroom, and now it's kind of siphoned off into different areas. So, parts of Times Insider, there's a, um, there's a big part of Times Insider that's devoted to um, live events, and um, there are a couple of people organising that. There are some editors in the newsroom who have now rolled under this new initiative called the Reader Center, which is um, designed to really forge ties with our audience. Um, and then for everybody in the newsroom, it's part of the job that you do, really. So um, Times Insider means reaching out to all of our reporters across all of the world and saying, what's this inside story? Can you tell the story? Is there something that you can share? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in a way, I feel like when we started out a couple of years ago, I, you'd sort of look at a new story and say, okay, well, you've got the core story and then you've got the video that goes with it, you've got the photo. And now I feel like in some ways the question is, and what's the insider piece as well? That feels like... Of course, it's not for every story, but that sort of feels like part and parcel of the whole package.
1: Mm. What about the international audience then do you, have you already do you have a, a base with the, the Times insider specifically um, or do you see scope for expanding that perhaps in your other uh, bureaus in uh, you know in France and um, okay. so the insi- the international audience is actually a really is a
2: really big um, audience that we're trying to go after with the with the times. And um insider I feel like is sort of one of the ways we can we can deliver to that audience. In terms of um sort of specifically reaching out to those audience, we've experimented a little bit with live events. um, Mm -hmm. In Canada and in the UK, um we are trying to sort of move beyond that, but we have to be realistic about where we have a big enough pocket of people to be able to engage them on that level.
1: Okay, but is that part of the roadmap or are you focusing at the moment on the domestic? I would say that um,
2: the global roadmap is on everybody's roadmap at the Mm -hmm. Times, just across the board. Mm -hmm. So everyone should be reaching out to the global audience and trying to figure that out.
1: Yeah. So how regularly do you uh, publish Times Insider stuff? I mean, is, are you seeing it more as like a retention um, tool, really, to sort of keep people engaged? Or how do you, how do you deal with that challenge of, of keeping them coming back? Yeah, okay. So we publish Times
2: Insider pieces basically every day. Um, we would do it just as, just as the politics desk would publish a politics story or the international desk would Publish an international story, Um, but it is, you know, for me, I look at it very much as a retention tool, and um, I think that with something like Times Insider, you start really seeing, um, to me, you really start seeing the value of the New York Times, Um, you start seeing some of the choices and the decisions that go into um, working on the news that we work on, some of it's incredibly hard and incredibly painful. Um just and some of it's funny. And um, you know, to give you a couple of examples just from the from the past week, we had um we had one story um by a by a correspondent named um Jeff Gethelman, and he wrote an incredibly um awful, actually awful Times Insider piece about how he had been um Interviewing a Rohingya refugee, and her baby had been thrown into a fire in front of his, in, in front of her eyes, and um, he was interviewing her about this, and he was going through the crisis of how awful it was, and why am I making her asking her to relive this, and why am I doing this? And yet, he in this in the insider piece, he sort of went through the decision-making process and realized that it was even more important to tell the story because of the ways it looked like the world didn't care. And I think that um, that's the kind of story that makes you realise all the sort of the decisions, the difficulty, um, the trauma, actually in his case, um, which of course was nothing compared to the woman he was interviewing. But um, and 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 a lot of the sort of the background that goes into something that just ends up as a as a piece that you read on your phone. I think you start realising the the holistic value of it, and when you think about making people part with their money, you've got to yeah. convey a real value there. And I think that's why Insider can be really quite compelling. Um, but again, it's not always awful. Sometimes it's funny. We had another piece last week about um, a reporter who was um, doing a piece on different condom sizes and um, trying to find guys who would talk about this and some of the sizes were smaller and how slippery and awkward it was and how she kept writing instead sort of... You know puns, and that also it really does a it really sort of takes um, it takes the reader a really long way in sort of realizing that these are people behind these stories. And I think um, sort of a little bit of self-deprecation, a little bit of humor, a little bit of honesty, um, this sort of this humanizing thing is so incredibly important. It's it's so it makes um, it makes you feel connected with the times, and it makes you feel that. That there's a lot more value than just the story
1: that you're reading. There are people behind it. It's much easier to connect with that. And do you feel like that humanising side is really important in terms of getting readers, I guess, to to pay for the news, making them feel? I think I think so. I
2: I can't definitively say yes, it is. Um, you know, at the times we really think that people are prepared to pay for excellent journalism and we found that people have especially you know in the past year our subscriptions have gone up they they are they are really solid now um but i think that sort of anything that can lend this sort of human aspect makes it a more compelling um, value proposition
0: for readers after the break francesca will answer questions on how to reconnect with that audience that has already lost that trust stay tuned but right now a quick break to tell you about digiday plus It's our subscription product where you'll get the Digiday magazine, a lot of valuable research about the industry, and you will also get to be a part of exclusive member events and our Digiday Plus Slack channels where we hold town halls with industry leaders and innovators every other week. We'll make sure you stay on the pulse of every development in the industry. Please sign up. It's at digidayplus.com.
1: Trust feels like in some very important quarters trust in the New York Times and in the and in media is really suffering, um, and the, the insider program sounds like a, a really important way to deepen the relationship with key audiences. I'm wondering about how do you, is the Times thinking about how to reestablish trust, trust in people who've lost it entirely?
2: Thank you. We've talked so much about trust that I can't believe the word only just came up, so thank you for, <laughs> um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I was thinking about this before before I came on stage, and when I clearly was not thinking about all the things that I should have learned over the past two years. Um, but when you're a journalist, when you're a when you're a physician or a lawyer, you go to um, graduate school and you get a diploma. And if you're a physician, you wear a white coat with your name stitched on it, and there's a great formality around that. But to be a reporter. Um, anyone can be a reporter, really. Um, not anyone can be a good reporter and not anyone is necessarily a trustworthy reporter, but at the Times we have a really, really strict code of ethics. We operate on certain levels, certain things are absolutely unacceptable, but we don't, I don't think we do a good enough job actually communicating that to our readers. Um, and saying, well, this is why we do this thing, or of course we fact-check our stories. It's always been assumed. Five years ago, it would have been almost ridiculous that I'm sitting here saying, of course we do that. Of course we double-check our sources. Of course we don't make stuff up. Or you know, that's, in, that's just inconceivable to us. Um, but I recognise this is actually a really serious issue, and one of the things that um, we're about to launch is um, something called an explainer series. And what I, I'm trying to do with that is basically communicate to readers, um, this is why we use anonymous sources. This is, why, this is why you can expect to see them and this is why a lot of stories are built around them. Or this is what a leak is, this is what it means, and this is why you see that in a lot of our stories. And I think being quite upfront and communicating, these are our practices, this is how it works. And being honest about that, that There's, no, I mean frankly, there's nothing to hide, but we never actually take the time and take that step of actually communicating. This is how we do this journalism, and I think, you know, sort of bringing people behind the scenes kind of helps them see this is what we do. This is how it works. This is how the sausage is made. It. I think that. I hope that will go a little bit of the way to making people feel more comfortable. Does
1: maybe time for one more. Yeah.
0: Hi, Francesca. Mark from Trinity Merit. And um, two-part question, really. I was talking last week to um, an editor of a, of a big UK national, not my own. <laughs> um, and we were talking about NYT, and we're both big fans of what you guys do. It's a default position we'd look to. And we were saying, that, we were talking about Snowfall, I guess, which I guess was the forerunner to some of the stuff you were talking here. And he was saying, yeah, but only the New York Times could do that with the resource they were able to put onto something like this. And I just wonder what your reaction to that would be. And the second question would be, uh, do you get sponsorship or commercial models attached to any of this as well to, to fund it?
2: Okay, so um, the the answer to the second question is I don't have sponsorship to fund Times Insider. This is a precedent of the newsroom, something we believe we should be doing. Um, and the answer to the first question, which is the, the getting the resources for a project like Snowfall, um, the ta- the time the New York Times is a fairly thickly staffed organization, and we're really fortunate. And I feel like that enables us to, take those, to make those experiments and to take those risks, and we're lucky that way. I wish I, had a, I wish I had a better answer for you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm afraid we're out of time, but Francesca will be around in the breaks. I hope if you want to catch up with her, so thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me. <laughs>
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. To learn more about our summits, visit digiday.com events. For exclusive member events, sign up at digidayplus.com and we'll be back soon with another episode.